Psalm 147 <laughs> begins with these wonderful words, praise the Lord. For it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant and praise is beautiful. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers together the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. <laughs> he counts the number of the stars. He calls them all by name. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding is infinite. The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts down the wicked, the wicked down to the ground. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Sing praises on the harp to our God, who covers the heavens with clouds, who prepares rain for the earth, who makes grass grow on the mountains. He gives to the beast its food and to the young ravens that cry. He does not delight in the strength of the horse. He takes no pleasure in the legs, legs of a man. The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and those who hope in his mercy. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion. For he has strengthened the bars of your gates. He has blessed your children within you. He makes peace in your borders and fills you with the finest wheat. He sends out his command to the earth. His word runs very swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters the frost like ashes. He casts out his hail like morsels. Who can stand before his gold? He sends out his word and melts them. He causes his wind to blow and the waters flow. He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and his judgments to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any nation. And as for his judgments, they have not known them. Praise the Lord. Our uh, sermon today, our sermon today is Exodus 3. It's uh, verses 13 through 15. It's entitled, I Am That I Am. And uh, I'll say something in a minute about these particular verses that is true. And I hope you'll take it to heart, the wonder of the words, I am that I am. Exodus 3, starting in the 13th verse, says, Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. Exodus is loved for several marvelous reasons and for a bunch of wonderful stories. There is the story of the baby floating in the ark down the Nile River who was tenderly received by Pharaoh's daughter. We have the burning bush that speaks to Moses. There are the great plagues which fall on Pharaoh and on Egypt. The parting of the Red Sea is so significant that we get the name Exodus, which means to depart from that account. And then there is the marvelous display of God's splendor as he speaks out the words of the Ten Commandments to the people of Israel as they stand at the base of Mount Sinai. No sooner do they behold this sight, though, than they famously turn from him and they make a golden calf to worship. These are but a few of the highlights which comprise this precious book. But of all the great stories, probably the most famous single line in the book of Exodus is found in today's verses as Moses continues his discourse with God from the bush. It is so well remembered by God's people that it is probably in the top five of all memorized words that are found in Scripture. 
just five simple words in the English and a mere three in the Hebrew. And yet they are so significant in their meaning that we will never fully understand all that they imply. Never. For all of eternity, the true meaning of the words eye, asher, eye, will be ceaselessly revealed to us. Other than the naming of Israel by the Jabbok River in Genesis chapter 32, I have never personally found such a profound sense of unworthiness in attempting to explain the importance of the words that we're going to look at today. Our text first today comes from Deuteronomy 32. And before I give this, I want you to know that as you're reading the Old Testament, if you see the word L-O-R-D, all in capitals, that is the divine name, Yehovah. Okay? L-O-R-D, all in capitals, is the divine name. Here's what it says in Deuteronomy 32, verses 3 and 4. For I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. He is the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of truth and without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. To proclaim the name of the Lord is to proclaim what is beyond human comprehension. Like trying to understand the very moment of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, we cannot fully grasp the immensity of what the name Jehovah implies. All we can do is place words around the name to help us form an image of who he is. He is the rock. All he does is perfect. His ways are just. He embodies truth in its fullest sense. He is righteous, and in him there is no unrighteousness. But in the end, these are only finite words, failingly attempting to explain what is infinite. Jehovah, the Lord God. Thankfully, God gave us more than mere words to help us understand him. He gave us the word. He gave us Jesus, the one in whom all of the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. When we see Jesus, we see the Father. Thank God for Jesus, who reveals to us the infinite in a form that we can grasp. This is all to be found in his superior word, and so let's turn to that precious word once again. May God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. Our first of only two thoughts today is, I am that I am. Verse 13 begins with these words. Then Moses said to God, Again, as we've seen already several times, the term God here has a definite article in front of it. In the Hebrew, it would say, then Moses said to the God. Pen that in for your future studies as it helps solidify what's being relayed. Moses has comprehended that this is the God. To confirm this, just as in verse 11, it says that Moses said to the God, ha Elohim in Hebrew. Verse 13 continues, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? Now, at first, this might seem like an inordinately unusual question to ask, especially because these are the covenant people. God has already identified himself as the God of their fathers. It would seem that that would suffice. Wouldn't they know who he is? But there is a difference between a description and a name. In Genesis, many descriptive titles have been used. There is the general title of El or Elohim, which goes right back to the first sentence of the Bible. That would be the God of creation. He is the lofty one. Then there is Shaddai, who is the powerful one, and he is the one who provides blessing and fruitfulness. There is also Yehovah, the existent one. 
These are descriptive titles that have been used more as designation so far. But they are they actually his name? That's what he's asking. And so what is being asked here is, which is the name that I use to tell them that the promises to our fathers will now be confirmed? Because each title represents a particular manifestation of his attributes and his abilities. He wanted to know which ability would describe the one who fulfills this covenant. If the name is tied into the covenant, then the accomplishment of the covenant is assured in the name. Now, to understand this, you want to think of the pantheon of Greek gods, okay? They had lots of gods. They had Apollo, and they had Athena, and they had Dionysius, and Hermes, and Poseidon, and Zeus, and all of these other gods that they called on, right? If one were to go to, to sea, you know, out on the ocean, they wouldn't call on Zeus. They would call on Poseidon, right? Moses comprehends that there is but one God, not a pantheon of gods, However, he has revealed himself so far in various ways. Which of these is the one that is proper and that is fitting to rest in based on his covenant promises? That's what he wants to know. This is particularly important because of these marvelous descriptions, some of them have actually been ascribed to idols. For example, this general title of Elohim was a general name which went beyond the people of Israel. And even Israel had called out to pagan idols and they had called them their Elohim. So to properly identify God was therefore most important. Moses's understanding of God has identified him as the one, the true, the covenant God of Israel. And so he is asking what name would be appropriate when calling out to him. And this is certainly the case because the name he will be given in the next verse is a name which has already been used many, many times in the book of Genesis. It's the word Yehovah. However, in Exodus chapter 6, the Lord is going to say this to Moses. And God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord, Jehovah, okay? I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, Lord, I was not known to them. Well, the title of Lord or Jehovah was known to them, and it was used often, but it was used as a descriptor, not as his name. From this point on, to his people, it is his name, and it's going to be used over 6,000 times in the Old Testament. The name is what is tied to his being, and it is what allows the human apprehension of him, as limited as that may be. Verse 14, and God said to Moses, there's no definite article in front of the word God here. It is understood from the text itself that there is one God, and that this one God is who is speaking to Moses. Again, if you follow the definite article when it is used and when it's not used in Scripture, it gives a much clearer picture of what's being relayed. To me, it's a shame that translations don't include that word when it should be there. Even though the definite article is used quite often in Genesis and in Exodus, it's left out in large part in many other books of the Bible. And yet, it's used many other times in other books of the Bible. For example, the books of 1 and 2 Chronicles use the definite article, the God, nearly 100 times, or a full quarter of the times that it's used in the Old Testament. Now, why would that be? Well, the reason is that they detail the history of the kings, both good and bad kings, along with their interactions with the surrounding nations with their false gods. And thus, there's a need to identify the God from time to time. That's why it's so prevalent in those books. 
The word of God is being specific when necessary because from specificity comes understanding. In this case, no definite article is necessary because it's already understood that he is the only God. Here we are. We're looking at the very words of God as he attempts to reveal himself to us, and yet we may miss important points and details because of a lack of translation. If so, then our understanding of him will be less than what it should be. And I think, what a shame. What a shame to come and worship him and to learn about him and then quickly pass through his word without the most careful consideration of it. I mean that sincerely. The chances are that you will never go through any given passage of scripture in detail more than once or maybe twice in your entire life. With that as a probable truth, then to attempt to search out every single detail with zeal will certainly be a source of rewards for you when you stand before the Lord on your day of judgment. And who is this Lord to whom we are accountable? Verse 14 goes on. I am who I am. Aye, asher, aye. I am who I am. What God speaks to Moses in these words reveals the very nature of God. And yet more is left unknown than we could ever know. Described in Revelation chapter 4 are four living creatures which are around the very throne of God. They see him continually, and yet they never cease in glorifying him. Here's the passage and what it says. And think of this. Before the throne, there was a sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like a calf, the third living creature had the face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. These four creatures full of eyes in front and back, never rest day and night as they proclaim words of astonishment. Holy, holy, holy. He is the Lord God Almighty, the self-existent one who was and who is and who is to come. From moment to moment and for all eternity, something new is revealed from him to their eyes in their utter astonishment at the ceaseless, endless glory which emanates from him all they can do is proclaim his surpassing greatness. Imagine that. What do the words, I am who I am, mean? Or is that even the best translation of the words, aye, asher, aye? The pulpit commentary says that in I am that I am, not in I am who I am, but in I am that I am, no better translation can be given of the Hebrew words, and I agree with them. When someone asks why we do something particular, how often do we say, oh, I am who I am? It leaves the impression that we are the way we are simply because of who we are. There's nothing to imply that we're self-existent. In fact, it can be inferred that we were created to be who we are. Oh, I am who I am because that's the way I was made. But I am that I am implies self-existence. There is being in and of himself. No beginning, no end. Thus it implies eternality and immutability. There is what could be considered a more literal rendering though. And I want you to know this. A scholar named Geddes translates the words as I will be that I will be. If you have an NIV, they even footnote it this way. However, 
Despite being more literal, it is less idiomatic because it lacks the simplicity of the Hebrew. In other words, just because something is more literal, it doesn't convey the idea in the way that is intended by the Hebrew itself. I am denotes existence in and of oneself. I will be doesn't necessarily convey that idea. In that case, it is as if Jehovah is ever ready to be, but not necessarily that he is. The simplest conveyance of his nature is that he isn't that he will be, but that he is. Once it's understood who he is, then who he will be follows naturally from that thought. If he is that he is, then from there we know who he will be. Always, always, because he never changes. But in not changing, that takes us right back to the proclamation of the four creatures around the throne. If they are forever proclaiming his holiness, and yet he is unchanging, then his holiness is beyond what the finite mind can grasp or understand. No matter how long we behold the Lord, there will always be more of him that can be revealed to our eyes. Always. No matter how much we see of him, and no matter how much we learn of him, even forever and forever for all eternity, it will still be infinitely less than what we will be able to learn about him. Thus, I am that I am is a term given for our benefit, but not our ability to comprehend. Another scholar, a guy named Boothroyd, translates these words as I am because I am. But the word asher here, which he translates as because, is being used as a relative pronoun, not a subordinating conjunction. Because is a subordinating conjunction. God is not who he is because of anything. He is the first cause of all things. He himself is without a cause. He is what we would call a necessary being. If he was caused, then he could have simply not been. If he could have not been, then there was a point when he wasn't. God could have created Jay over there, or he could have not created Jay. Jay is what we would call a not necessary being. God is a necessary being. In other words, you could have not been. God didn't need to create you. By his grace and by his love, he did. So I hope you understand the difference there. If this is true, if he was created or caused, then he would still not exist. Because anything that didn't once exist would only be in existence through something which exists already. But if he is God, then there would be nothing before him to bring him into existence. And then there would be no God. And that means there would be no thing. If there were no God, there would be no thing. But there is Moses. He's standing there in front of the burning bush being told that the voice from the bush is that which is without a cause, and thus he is the cause of all other things, including the bush, including the fire in the bush, and including Moses, who was standing there looking at the bush. The Hebrew is best translated into the English words, I am that I am. Now, the Greek translation of the Old Testament translates the words as ego, imi, aon. I am the existing being. It's a pretty good translation, but what it does is it explains the Hebrew more than it translates it. It does give a good sense of the words, though. Now, as an exciting highlight to the passage, and it's unfortunate my mom isn't here today, there's a pattern which is found right here, right here in the Bible, which is centered on this very verse. 
during a Bible study some years ago, we were going through this passage and my mother happened to be the one that was reading each verse. We trade off in the Bible classes. She was reading the verses and I would explain them, okay? After talking about a particular verse for a little while, she started reading again and she said, oh, I've already read that. And I said, no, that's where you should be. But that tells you there's probably a pattern which is hidden in the text. Anytime you have a repetition, it is there to reveal something. And I believe Jay and Joan were in that class at the time. Maybe, maybe you were too. But uh, there we were talking about that. And my mom says, oh, I've read that already. And I said, no, this is where you should be. But I'll bet you that there is a hidden pattern in the Bible. And so we went through the passage and out came what is called a chiasm, centered right on the proclamation, I am who I am. In itself, this pattern shows the covenant-keeping nature of God towards his people as is revealed in the very nature that he speaks. And so I want to give this to you, Darla. If you'll pass that around, just take a look at it real quickly. Now I'm going to explain it just cursorily, and then you'll understand what that pattern is doing. And I'm also going to put it on YouTube so that people can see this. And this was found on the uh, 22nd of August in 2011. My mother was the one reading, and then we got together and we looked and found this pattern in here. It centers on I am who I am. But if you look at it, you'll see the top verse says a land flowing with milk and honey. And the very bottom verse says a land flowing with milk and honey. And then the next verse says to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. And it repeats it down here in verse 317. And then another one comes in and another. And it's repeating itself. It's called a chiasm because the Greek letter key looks like an X. And so it looks like this. And it is God trying to tell us something about his covenant-keeping nature. And what does he anchor it on? He anchors it on the words, I am who I am. This entire covenant is being proclaimed by the Lord who is I am. And there it was, hidden in the Bible for 3,500 years, and we found it during a Bible study. It's amazing that you'll find these things from time to time as God opens up his words to you. So as you're reading the Bible, if you come across something which seems repetitive, make a note of it and take the time to see if you can draw the pattern out of it. There are literally thousands of these and many other types of patterns in the Bible as well. Each one of them helps us to understand the passage more clearly and to grasp what is the intended meaning of that passage, what it actually is trying to tell us. Verse 14 continues, and he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. It is I am who has commissioned and directed Moses to the children of Israel. The name is the assurance, and thus the assurance lies in the name. It is a sign, and it is a token to the people that Moses is the selected one, and that Jehovah is the source of the selection. The name will also ensure the outcome. The name Jehovah, or some people nowadays say Yahweh, which we translate as Lord, L-O-R-D, is derived from the word Eyeh, which is used in that verse. Okay, It means to fall out or to come to pass, or to become, or simply to be. And so, with these words, God has confirmed that he is to be known to his people by the name Jehovah, specifically. The name Jehovah carries that exact same meaning. He is, or he will cause to be. Now, according to Aberim, to a Hebrew audience, the name Jehovah may have looked very much like this. He who causes that which is, to be. In other words, he is the causer of all things. As he is uncaused, then all things that exist were caused by him. He then is the first cause of all things. He's the unmoved mover and he is the giver of existence. If this same giver of existence, 
who is described multiple ways in the Old Testament, is also described in the New Testament, then we know that we have a correlation between the two. Paul's words of Colossians chapter 1 show us that he understood Jehovah of the bush to be who? To be the Lord Jesus. Here's what he says in Colossians chapter 1. For by him, now remember, if there's a God and he's the creator of all things, and somebody else is described as God who is the creator of all things, then they must be the same being because there can only be one God. Listen to what Paul says. For by him, Jesus, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. And that in that he is self-existent, and that all things come from him, then that means that all things are actually encompassed by him. There is no place where we are or where we could be which is outside of his being. David in the Old Testament understood this, and he wrote this. Now remember, this is Old Testament. This is David writing words, understanding the nature of what Jehovah implies. Here's what he said. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Paul in the New Testament used this exact same argument to convince those in Athens of this truth. While standing in the Areopagus, he cited one of their own poets, a guy named Aratus, to show that this is actually a universally understood concept, something that anybody, even somebody outside of the covenant people can grasp. Here's what he said to them. And he has made, meaning Jesus, from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth. And he has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. And here's what he says. For in him we live and move and have our being. He's citing a, a Greek poet named Aratus, as also some of your own poets have said. For we also are his offspring. The name I am or Jehovah implies an absolute uniqueness. If he is the giver of existence, then there is none other that gives existence and therefore none other like him. Isaiah's words show this to be true as well. Here's what he says in Isaiah 45. I am the Lord and there is no other. There is no God besides me. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that they may know me from the rising of the sun to the setting, that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, L-O-R-D, Jehovah, and there is no other. I form the light and I create darkness. I make peace and create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. The name also implies eternality. He is outside of time, having created it. And therefore, though he interacts with it, it has no effect on him, okay? This is seen in Jesus' words of John 8 when he spoke to the leaders of Israel. Here he said this, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then the Jews said to him, You are not 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. This is also confirmed in the letter to the Hebrews. Despite the divine Jesus, I'm not speaking about his humanity, I'm speaking about his divinity. 
despite the divine Jesus interacting with time, he is outside of time and thus he is unchanging in his being. And here's what it says. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Again, though, it's appropriate to connect Jehovah of the Old Testament to Jesus of the New. As Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, so it is with Jehovah. Malachi 3.6 tells us this explicitly in the words, For I the, am the Lord your God, I do not change. There can be no escaping what the Bible proclaims. If Jehovah is the self-existent, eternal, and unchanging God, and yet Jesus is self-existent, eternal, and unchanging, then he must be God incarnate. The obvious nature of the words of the Bible can only mean this. It can mean nothing else. Though many attempt to diminish the implications of what the Bible teaches, they only do it to their own detriment. John made this perfectly clear when he wrote the opening words to his gospel account. He wrote these words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. The existence of Christ is independent of creation. It is without conditions, and it is an existence from which everything else is derived, and on which all else, including you and me, is dependent. The enormity of the words spoken concerning Jesus Christ are equally as vast, as awesome, and as terrifying as those spoken to Moses from the bush at Mount Sinai. And yet, there is more to the name. The name I am that I am explains who Jehovah is in his ability to speak prophecy and then to fulfill prophecy. If he is the creator of all that exists, and if he is outside of his created existence, then he can see all of that existence simultaneously, past, present, and future. Throughout the Bible, God speaks of the future and then fulfills that which he speaks. In Genesis chapter 15, he said this to Abraham, know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and they will serve them, and they will afflict them 400 years, and also the nation whom they serve I will judge. Afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. When the promise was made, it was sure to be fulfilled. Nothing could thwart it, and nothing could change it. That time has now come to pass for Moses, and he will fulfill what he has spoken. Israel will be brought out. And this same group of people, to them, another promise was made about 2,600 years ago. Through Ezekiel, he said these words, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up from your graves. I will put my spirit in you and you shall live and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, says the Lord. Sure enough, in our own lifetime, this promise which was made to Israel during their first exile, long before they had been exiled the second time, has now come to pass. He can speak the future because to him the future is not the future. It's merely a part of what's laid out before him. And so that brings us to yet another aspect of what I am that I am implies. As the words of the Lord through Ezekiel note, I the Lord have spoken it and have performed it. 
because his words are guaranteed to be to come about they can be relied on in other words he is faithful and he is true to each and every single word that he has spoken and to every promise that he has made there can be no other way not only does he speak but that which he speaks is a covenant in and of itself his words cannot fail to occur it is an inviolable word it is a guarantee and it is an unbreakable commitment Isaiah says that his faithfulness is like the belt on his waist and John calls him faithful and true all of this is tied up in the name Jehovah these things are because they can be no other way and still one more aspect of the name comes forth because he is and because he is he who causes that which is to be then he is the source of all blessing and all that blesses. He is an inexhaustible, ceaseless, endless fountain of joy. We try to imagine what heaven will be like, but no matter how much we imagine, it will always fall short of what we can imagine. When we behold the Lord, we will behold the very source of all that has ever been or ever will be, including heaven itself. To see the face of the Lord, then, is to see the fullness of any expectation that we have had, that we have now, or that we ever, ever will have. From him will flow joys and delights that will never end. Thus, David rightly said this. Even in the Old Testament, he understood this. One thing I have desired of the Lord, that I will seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. What more could one truly seek or desire than to behold the beauty of the Lord, the one from which all beauty is derived, the one from which all wisdom is attained, the one from which all joy streams forth, and the one who has eternity in his grasp, and he offers it to those whom he favors. Verse 15, Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, Again, no definite article in front of the word God. It is understood that this is the one and the true and the only God, and so there's no need to identify him as the God. And so Elohim said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel. The words are intended for the covenant people as a covenant sign. The words which he speak are of covenant surety. Verse 15 continues, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. The term the Lord God is Jehovah Elohe. The word Aa or I am spoken of in the preceding verse is modified here into the name Jehovah. This is done by substituting the third person for the first person, but the meaning remains unchanged. And connected to this is the extended thought that he is the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. The line is defined through them. The line of Abraham may include the son Ishmael, but it is not of the line of Ishmael. The line of Isaac may include the son Esau, but it is not of the line of Esau. They may be included in their father Abraham if they belong to the Lord God of their father, but the line is not through them. It is through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Verse 15 ends with these words. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. The name Jehovah Elohe, the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is given for all generations. 
Now think of that, because people are claiming the title of Abraham, and they're skipping around Isaac and Jacob, and they're doing it all over the world today. And he has specifically said, this is my name for all generations. It must come through Abraham, through Isaac, and Jacob, implying Israel. No other God. This is my name for all generations. But this might bring us to ask, why isn't this name given in the New Testament? The reason is that the Greek translation of the Old Testament renders Jehovah, the divine name, as the word kurios. This then is translated as Lord. In the Old Testament, it's generally spelled, as I said, with all capital letters signifying Jehovah. In the New Testament, the Greek word kurios continues to be used when speaking of Jesus. That's correct. But the thought of the one who is, or the existent one, also continues in the New Testament in several ways. Jesus is called the Word of God, implying that he is also the existent one. Also, as I read earlier in Revelation, the term him who is and who was and who is to come is used when speaking of Jesus on several occasions. And so the title continues in him in this way, and thus it is his memorial to all generations. In Hebrew, the term is ledor dor, or to generations, generations, implying it's a superlative way of saying forever and forever and forever. Adam Clark's thoughts on this verse are worthy of being quoted. Here's what he says. While human generations continue, he shall be called the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. But when time shall be no more, he shall be Jehovah Elohim. Hence, the first expression refers to his eternal existence, the latter to the discovery that he should make of himself as long as time should last. And we will participate in that as we discover him for all of eternity. I am the one who created all things, and by me all things are held together. My works are that of which the angel sings. Stretching out the heavens, they go on forever. I am the Lord who called Abraham so long ago. I am the one who renamed Jacob Israel. I spoke from the burning bush to Moses, you know, and of me, David in the Psalms does tell. I am the word of God who was and is and is to come, and I offer the water of life. Be pleased to partake of some. Our second thought, it's a short thought. I am implies I will. Concerning behavior as a way of identifying things, Abarim says this. In Hebrew scriptures, entities, think of you, think of anything you see, entities are reckoned solely after their behavior and not after their appearance. An entity is a behavior, not that which executes the behavior. Now, to understand this, just think of how we use our own language. If we see a picture of a pig, we would say, that's a pig. The appearance of the animal is how we reckon the thing. However, if we see someone gorging himself on food, the common expression we would use is, that's a pig, right? And so we see the pig isn't the actual appearance, but rather the behavior. This is how things are named and identified in the Hebrew mind. It's a dynamic language of action in order to identify. So here's a question for you. If you have a horse, a cow, and a swallow, which of the two of them are the most alike? In our language, and our way of thinking, we would say certainly that the horse and the cow are most certainly alike. We do this because the appearance defines the thing. However, the Hebrew word for horse and the Hebrew word for swallow are the same word. It's the word sus. The reason goes back to the behavior of the two. The verb sus denotes being swift or to flash by. 
A cow is a rather inactive fellow. He chews on grass, he plods along in the field, and then he stops to chew his cud, right? Rather dull and mundane is the cow. But a horse, like a swallow, flits about. It darts to the left and then it darts to the right. They both act with unbridled freedom and an attitude that marks them as anything but mundane. In fact, Job describes the horse this way and think of the swallow while I'm reading about the horse. Have you given the horse his strength? Have you closed his neck with thunder? Can you frighten him like a locust? Think of a little swallow. No, you can't do it either. His majestic snorting strikes terror. He paws in the field and rejoices in his strength. He gallops into the clash of arms. He mocks at fear and is not frightened, nor does he turn back from the sword. The quiver rattles against him, the glittering spear and javelin. He devours the distance with fierceness and rage, nor does he come to a halt because the trumpet is sounded. At the blast of the trumpet, he says, Aha! He smells the battle from afar, the thunder of captains and shouting. Then think of a swallow doing the same thing, just flitting about, not caring about the battle going on at all. If the word sus implies swiftness, then we know that the horse and the swallow will be swift. The word kelev in Hebrew means dog, but the word is used to describe the behavior of people who act like dogs in the Bible, treacherous people, male cult prostitutes, and so on. So what does this have to do with the great I am? In understanding the name, we can more fully understand the behavior from which the name is assigned. In Deuteronomy, Moses reminded the people of Israel about what they saw on Mount Sinai. There he said these words, And the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but you saw no form. You only heard a voice. Just like he spoke to Moses out of the fire in the bush, which wasn't consumed, he also spoke to the people of Israel out of the fire on the mountain. He went on to explain to them that because they saw no form, it tells them that Jehovah is not like anything in creation and therefore no created thing could represent him. The name Jehovah then defines his character. It is not an appearance, but it is a behavior. If behavior is what defines, then we can better perceive who Jehovah is. His name is I am that I am, and so it implies that he will. I don't know how much this helped you yet, but think on it. Reflect on the name. Reflect on the things that Jehovah has spoken, and then reflect on the person that he has revealed himself as, Jesus. And then reflect on those things that he has spoken directly to you. If he is, then anything he says must be, even if it hasn't happened yet. Jeremiah told the people of Israel, that their captivity would last for 70 full years. The fact that the Lord revealed this to them was an absolute guarantee that the exile would end after 70 years, even if it hadn't happened yet. Daniel understood this completely, and so he did not pray to the Lord that it was time to return the people of Israel to the land of Israel after 57 years. No, rather, he petitioned the Lord when the 70 years were completed. E.W. Bollinger, reading the Bible almost 80 years before the reestablishment of Israel, knew, he knew that they would be reestablished as a nation after 2,520 years, and it came to pass exactly as he surmised. The point of this is that if I am has spoken, he will. If Jesus is I am, and he is, then he will. And so your commission today, when you, we get done here, is to take time to read the very last page of the Bible, okay? 
It won't take five minutes of your time. And when you're reading it, don't think of it as a future maybe, but as an absolute certainty. The voice from the burning bush, the voice from the burning mountaintop, and the voice of the Lord who called out, it is finished from the cross of Calvary are one and the same voice. It is his voice that spoke out the words of the Bible. And so those words reflect not appearance, but behavior. They are faithful and they are true and they are inviolable. Nothing can thwart them, nothing can change them. And if they pertain to you because of your faith in Jesus Christ, then they are an absolute guarantee. Have faith in this, look beyond the pains, look beyond the trials, look beyond the heartaches, and even beyond the times of depression. Lift your eyes to the hills from whence cometh your help, even to the heavenly Mount Zion, to where we are headed. And finally today, I'd ask you to consider your position with the Lord. Are you 100% sure that the Lord of creation, the self-existent, unchanging, and eternally glorious Lord will receive you according to his promises that he has made to his children? Are you sure of that? You can be sure by a simple act of faith in Jesus Christ. If you have never made such a commitment, I'd like you to give me just another minute to explain to you what you need to know so that you have the blessed assurance of eternal life in his promised and therefore guaranteed paradise. Jesus Christ came to undo the work of the devil. God created man, he created him perfectly, and he gave man free will. He said, obey me and all things will go well with you. And man disobeyed God. He chose to do something he was told not to do and man fell at that time. It was called missing the mark, sin. He sinned against God and all human beings since Adam have inherited the sin of Adam. And thus we are eternally separate from God the Father. We can never be reconciled to him by anything we do because we can't go back before the sin. We're in time and we're going this way. But Jesus Christ stepped out of the infinite realm, which is what we've been talking about through this entire sermon. He stepped out of that realm and he united with human flesh. His divine nature is not affected by it. His human nature is. And his human nature died, taking our sin upon his cross. And thus he can bridge back to the infinite Father and he can bridge to you who are finite and fallen and unholy. And he can make the restoration possible through his blood. His blood is what covers our sins. Our sins are nailed to the cross and thus the old covenant is done away with. And we're in a new covenant with Jesus Christ through faith. It is by grace you are saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God and not of works. There is no work you can do. It is not of works lest any man should boast when we get to the throne someday, we won't have one thing, single thing to boast about. We will not say, I'm here because I. We're gonna say, I am here because behold, the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. Call on Jesus Christ today and be reconciled to God the Father through his blood. Our closing verse today comes from Proverbs 18. It's the 10th verse. The name of the Lord, L-O-R-D, Jehovah, is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. Okay. Exodus 6, uh, 3, 16 through 22 will be our next sermon. It's called Expected Resistance, Assured Deliverance. And we're talking about assurances guaranteed to happen if he says it's going to happen. That'll be our ninth Exodus sermon. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. And so even if a deep ocean lies ahead of you, he can part those waters and he can lead you through them on dry ground. So follow him 
and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay, good, wonderful, assuring words. Our poem today is called, I Am. Then Moses said to God, indeed, when I come to the children of Israel, to Egypt, I trod and say to them then, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they say to me in this way, what is his name? How do we know it's true? What shall I to them say? And God said to Moses in this way, I am who I am, this I tell. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Be certain that these words then are true. Moreover, God to Moses did tell, thus you, you shall say to the children of Israel, the Lord God of your fathers is who? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever for acclamations, and this is my memorial to all generations. The name of the Lord is the surest guarantee that what is pro proclaimed will certainly come about. As we read the Bible, we can the future see all things he proclaims and in them have no doubt. And so through trials or troubles, let us not be downhearted. Rather, let us lift our eyes to God's holy hill. The raging ocean will surely be parted and the path through it will be peaceful and still. We have this hope because of the Lord Jesus who has done all things marvelously for us. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for the truth of your word, the absolute assurance that your word is a proclamation of who you are and therefore it cannot be anything other than truthful. And every promise that is in that word will come about exactly as you've said. We've seen it recorded in the Bible. Things are promised and things happen. We see things that have happened in our own lifetime and with our blind eyes, we, we just refuse to see it. We refuse to acknowledge what your word proclaims. Forgive us of this and help us to say, I will accept this word exactly as it's written. I may not be in favor of some of the things it says for whatever reason I have in my life, but I will, I will believe it and I will trust it and I will proclaim it. Help each of us to do this. Help us to be faithful because you are faithful and you want us to emulate you. Help us to do this so that we are strong and reliable Christians that others can come to, that they can ask questions of, and that we can answer fully and completely. Forgive us for not searching out your word completely and wholly as well. Forgive us for that and help us each day from now on for the rest of our lives to only want to search out the mysteries of your word and to proclaim it and to hold fast to it. What a great God you are. What an absolutely wonderful God you are. Thank you that you stepped out of the infinite realm and united with human flesh. and You came in the person of Jesus. Thank you that our sins are washed away through his blood. And thank you that he really came out of the grave to prove that we are on our way, the heavenly highway. What a great promise that is. And thank you for the surety that we will behold the beauty of the Lord for all eternity. If nothing else, just let us see your beauty, O oh God. We love you and we praise you. We exalt you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amazing. It's simply amazing. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The Bible says he's coming. If he says it, it must be true. If his name, I am, means what it means, then it must be true. And so we take this communion week after week, waiting for that day. And I got to tell you what, I'm talking to several of you today. Oh, we hope this is the year. Man, I hope this is the day. I just can't wait. I can't wait because, yes, it's nice to be here and it's good to see your grandchildren and all those fun things that happen. But 
as I said, if all of the beauty of everything that we see was derived from him, how much more beautiful is he? There's nothing that's keeping me here. Boy, I tell you, I'm ready to go any moment, any moment. Paul wrote these words for us for the uh, sake of communion until that glorious day. He said, for I also received from the Lord that which I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and he would have given thanks over it. He would have said these words, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu, Melech haolam hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe. He brings forth bread from the earth. And he broke it. And he said, take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper. And he would have blessed this as well. He would have said, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam borei peri hagafen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and of the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body.
Wonderful stuff from your word, Lord. Thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you. Amen. Amen. Amen.